Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now we look into the New Testament reading for today, and it will be from the book of John, chapter 18, verses 1 through 24. Here's what's going on in this chapter of the book of John. Judas depended on the strength of numbers, Peter on the strength of his arm, Annas and Caiaphas on the strength of their position, but Jesus on the strength of love and devotion to the Father. Jesus had a cup in his hand, not a sword, but that cup was his scepter. He was in complete control. On the other hand, Peter fought when he should have yielded and followed when he should have fled. Yielding and fleeing looked like defeat, but they were the Father's will, and Peter should have obeyed. While Jesus was giving his witness to the high priest, Peter was outside denying the Lord. Which was the successful witness, Peter or Jesus? Well, it's pretty obvious. Now, as a Roman governor, Pilate was worried about the threat of another kingdom. Verse 36, as we shall see, is certainly a rebuke to believers who follow the example of Peter. At Pentecost, Peter wielded the sword of the Spirit and won a victory. And with that, let's begin today's reading in the New Testament. May 29th, the New Testament. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 24. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place, because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, Who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, It's better that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire, 
They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, Everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple, where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus replied, If I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas the high priest. Today we're reading Psalm 119, verses 97 through 112. Those who love God's Word and obey it develop a practical wisdom for guiding their lives. It is dangerous to learn from your enemies, and both your teachers and your elderly friends may not know what you need to know. Learn all you can from every good source. But let God, not man, be your teacher. Because in a dark world, God's Word will be your light. To keep you from the traps and detours of the enemy, God gives you the light you need to make one step at a time. If you want more light, you must obey what He says, then more light will come. God sends the light into your heart and gives you the wisdom you need. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 112. Mem, oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I am always thinking of your laws. I am even wiser than my elders, for I have kept your commandments. I have refused to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations, for you have taught me well. How sweet your words taste to me! They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. None. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet, and a light for my path. I've promised it once, and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. I have suffered much, O Lord. Restore my life again as you promised. Lord, accept my offering of praise, and teach me your regulations. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. The wicked have set their traps for me, but I will not turn from your commandments. Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. I am determined to keep your decrees to the very end. Proverbs 16, verses 8 and 9. Better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 
South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesChanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio and have a blessed day. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for gathering us here. Um, God, we thank you for this opportunity now to look at your word, to look at Psalm 96. And uh, Father, we ask that your spirit would open our hearts, our minds, our, our souls, our affections to hear and receive from you this morning. That you would guide us into truth, that we'd see your glory, um, that the gospel of Jesus would be made known in our hearts. So, Father, we thank you for your presence among us. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here. Um, yeah, it's an honor to be with you uh, this morning. We're beginning a new sermon series called A Summer in, a Summer in the Psalms. Um, we're, we've been in Acts for a while. We're taking a bit of a break for the next seven or eight weeks and, and going to be looking at the Psalms and, and seeing what God has to speak to us through them. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, the Psalms are a great book, one of my favorites uh, in the Bible. And um, I think we just have a lot to learn from them. And, and God's going to use them in a great way in the life of our community and our hearts uh, as we learn from them. So um, we're beginning today with Psalm 96. And um, just as we begin, I wanted to do a bit of background that may be helpful just as we think about the Psalms. Um, one, of the, one of the most popular authors of the Psalms is King David. Uh, you may have heard of him before, King of Israel. He wrote a, a number of the Psalms. Um, Moses wrote some, uh, Solomon, sons of Korah, sons of Asaph, and a few others wrote the Psalms. So it's kind of a compilation of a bunch of different authors. Um, but more applicable for us this morning, I think, than the authorship is their purpose. So literally, like, the Psalms are a song or a poem. That's what it is. It's a, it's a book of, of songs and poems. And this was their intent as they were written. They were written in this way. And so for us to read them correctly, we need to read them not strictly as teaching doctrine or um, informational, but we need to read them as, as a song, uh, musically, as a poem. Um, and this is important to note because songs and poetry are intended to do something different than, you know, say, like strict doctrine or theology or, or an, you know, laying out of truth. Songs and poems are meant to, meant to inspire us, to, to capture the affections of our hearts, to awaken our, our souls and our minds. And the Psalms are, are designed to, to do that, to, ex, to express, to awaken our hearts and emotions, to be in line with the truth that they proclaim. So they do proclaim truth. They do proclaim um, right things about God and right responses, and, and they're designed to awaken us and to bring our, ourselves in line with that. Um, so as we approach the Psalms and this series on the Psalms, it's, it's just really important for us to note that so that we don't approach it just cognitively, hey, what can we learn from this this morning? Although I, I hope that we do learn something this morning. But we're, we're approaching it a little bit more openly with our emotions, our souls. What is, this, what is this calling me to? And I know some of you that may make you uncomfortable if you're not the feeling type, if you just like to think about things, but that's okay. Just embrace the discomfort this morning. It's gonna be great. Um, you'll enjoy it. Psalm 96 so we're not going to go through this psalm strictly exegetical, verse by verse this morning. I want to spend a little bit more time looking at its overall purpose, the overall call that this psalm is giving to us. What is this, 
what is the big picture? What is this, what is this psalm describing for us to and inviting us into? And, and the answer to that is this psalm is calling us to worship God. It's calling us to worship. It says, you know, sing to God, sing and bless his name, tell of his salvation, declare his glory and his works, ascribe to him the glory to his name, worship God in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth, declare that God reigns over all. So the big picture is that it's, it's calling us to align our worship with who God is and what he has done, the truth that this psalm is presenting to us. So why was this psalm written? Like, why did the psalmist feel the need to direct our worship in a certain way or to direct our worship in this way, to engage us in this way, to call our worship to be directed towards God in a way that engages our whole selves, our singing, our, our emotions, our telling each other, our bodies, our, our hands, our singing. If we look at Psalms, there's a lot of call to worships in the Psalms and many of them call us to sing and use instruments and raise our hands and clap and shout. There's all these engaging ways that the Psalms call us to worship God. So the question we could ask is why? Why do we need this? Why is this in scripture? Why is the psalmist directing our worship in this way? And that's a question I kind of want to explore with us today um, as we go through the psalm, as we look at this concept of worship. What does it mean to worship God? And the place that we need to start for this is glory. When we start talking about worship, the first thing we got to understand is glory. So what is Glory. And the concept of glory is mentioned several times here in Psalm 96. In verse 3, the psalmist tells us, declare his glory, speaking of the Lord's glory, among the nations. In, in verses 7 and 8, we are to ascribe to the Lord, glory do his name, speak of it, proclaim it. Verse 6 says that splendor and majesty, which are just another way of talking about glory, are before the Lord, they belong to the Lord. In verse 9, we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness the splendor of his glory. All of this is calling us to recognize and see and respond to the glory of God. So what is glory and how is it connected with worship? Uh, Worship is complex, but yet it's really, really simple. Um, And to understand worship, we have to understand glory. So glory starts with an understanding that we as humans desire it, okay? And I think desire is even a light word uh, for, for this this concept. Uh, another way of saying it are, are we as humans are glory hungry. We're, we crave it. We're addicted to glory. We're, we're consumed with it. And we have this unending desire to pursue glory. And we were created like this by God. Scripture shows us this. So what is glory? In scripture, we see this concept of glory used various ways. I'm just going to go over this real quick just to give us some broad perspective. Revelation uh, 4 says, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory. So glory is something that we give to God. God receives it. Um, Moses says to the Lord in Exodus 33, I pray to you, Lord, show me your glory. So glory is something that God reveals to us. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Wait, so glory is something that we can do something in a way that it gives glory to something? Uh, Galatians 6, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait, so do we have glory? How does this work? The answer to it is yes. All of those things, all of the above, yes. Glory is something that God has. It's something we give. It's something we have. It's something we crave. 
So just to break it down a bit and help us wrap our heads around it, um, I find it really helpful to uh, think of glory in two basic ways. There's a glory within and a glory given. Glory within, glory given. Glory within. Um, In Scripture, the most common words used and translated as glory are defined as a weight of glory, a a splendor, a, a weight of honor, a weight of dignity, abundance. And simply put, glory is the weight of someone or something's worth or value. Glory is its value, its, its honor. So in regards to God, as we think about God, his glory is the weight of his infinite importance and worth. It's a recognition of the value within. Scripture says that the glory of God fills the heavens, that the skies declare and point towards God's glory. The weight of God's glory and worth and importance fills the universe. Just think on that for a second, right? It fills the universe. The stars and the skies, the universe, which we can't even wrap our heads around, like the numbers that they throw out about the number of stars, we can't even comprehend. We haven't found the edge of the universe, apparently, or we have found it, but it's expanding. I don't know. My, my neighbor's into that stuff, and I just, I talk with him, and I don't understand it. I don't get it. And this is saying, Scripture is saying that God's glory is simply, all of that is pointing towards God's glory. God's glory fills all of that. God in his glory created all of that. So scripture also teaches that glory is seen all around us, though, in multiple places. So not only does God have glory, but in Isaiah 53, it talks of the glory of fruitfulness. uh, fruitfulness. In Ezekiel 29, it talks about the glory of the land. In 1 Corinthians 11, the glory of men and women. Uh, Hebrews 5, the glory of the church. Hebrews 9, the glory of angels. And the list goes on. But scripture also describes, as I said earlier, that God's glory is the source of all glory. It's over all glory, it's above all glory, and it's out of God's glory that everything was created. So if we put this together in light of a creator God, we see that all things on earth, all actions that possess a glory, or they possess a glory to the degree that they reflect the glory of God. To the degree that they reflect the glory of God. In that, they reflect the goodness of worth in God. Jonathan Edwards writes the outshining, that glory is the outshining of internal excellence. The intrinsic goodness, the weight of intrinsic goodness. So that's glory within. Glory within is the honor, the weight of honor and dignity that something possesses in that it possesses it in reflection to God's glory. G- glory given then is simply the reverence and recognition of glory within. So something that has glory, we recognize that and we say, that is awesome. That is us giving glory to that, recognizing and elevating that worth, right? So to connect everything together, because I don't want just to get lost in like theory here, is worship is to recognize the glory within of something and then to respond with glory given, to proclaim and ascribe its worth or its value. And this concept of worship and glory goes to the core of who we are as humans. Fundamentally, as humans, we are constantly giving glory to worshiping something or someone. And I said earlier, we're, we're addicted to glory. And what I mean by that is we cannot not worship. We cannot not worship. As, as humans, as people, we are constantly, continuously outpouring in worship or giving glory to someone or something. We cannot stop. Harold Best, in his book, uh, Unceasing Worship, writes, we begin with one fundamental fact about worship. At this very moment, for as long as this world endures, endures, everyone inhabiting it is bowing down, serving something or someone. 
an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers and will remain so forever. Harold defines our worship as continuous outpouring. And I love that language. A continuous outpouring of glory given to things that have glory within. We cannot turn it off. We cannot stop worshiping. We can only direct its aim. And this is really important for us to, to, to understand and, and comprehend, uh, especially as we approach Psalm 96. And, as, and, and it's important for us to think about this in terms of this is how we were created. This is a design given to us by God. We were created out of the outpouring nature of the triune God for God's glory. Re- created to outpour reflecting his nature, his glory. Designed to outpour and worship to God in all that we do. Every thought, emotion, action, deed, way of being. Outpouring in a way that glorifies God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, outpours in love and glory inwardly towards each other and then outwardly towards humanity in infinite lordship. And humanity is then created in the same image as outpour, yet finite, not infinite, outpouring in worship towards God. This is us, created worshiping. Not created just to worship as if it's something we start or stop or as if it's a task we have been given, but it's who we are worshipers constantly outpouring in worship and this takes on different different appearances it ebbs and flows it can be conscious and that we make a decision to give glory to something in a conscious way or it can be continuous and unconscious as it's just a part of our life it can be intense and quiet ecstatic commonplace but all we do is part of our continuous outpouring in worship genesis we see adam and eve created this way right Living in the perfect worship, living perfectly outpouring in worship to God, reflecting his glory through the very being and action. And it's important that we get this because of what happened to worship, right? And what happened to Adam and Eve is the fall happened, right? Sin entered the world. In Genesis chapter chapter 3, we see the fall of mankind as sin enters the world, deceived by the serpent. Adam and Eve didn't stop worshiping at the fall. The continuous outpouring of glory giving didn't end. Rather, something much deeper happened. Something far down in our being was ruined and inverted. See, the deceptive lie that Adam and Eve believed was that they could be like God. That they could have the same glory that God had. And so rather than being satisfied in the glory of God as they were created to be, they turned and they started worshiping the, the fading, finite glory of the created things. They exchanged the perfect, infinite, unending glory of God and began to outpour and worship and give worship to the fading, finite things around us. They took the glory, the diamond of God's glory, the, 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 un, uh, you know, the, the value of, of a diamond of God's glory and exchanged it for a dull, rusty penny and begin pursuing that rather than God. Romans 1 puts it this way. In verse 22 and 23, it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, what? The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds and animals and creeping things. And then verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Worship didn't stop. 
It didn't end. It was just now misaimed. It was outpouring to all the wrong things. And we, this morning, in our sin, each and every one of us have done the exact same thing. Have done the exact same thing. We have exchanged the glory of God for dull, rusty pennies. Shiny trinkets that we chase after and we pour ourselves out to. The tragedy of this is that we're created with such a large desire for glory that the infinite glory of God, the unending glory of God is the only thing that will satisfy us, the only thing that will cause our souls to rest, the only things that we will find fulfilling. It's only the glory of God. Matt Popper writes in his book, Look and Live, he writes, the triune God is the only thing large enough and interesting enough to bear the weight of glory, the ultimate worship, and ultimately worship. Anything else will break your heart. Money isn't secure enough. Sex isn't thrilling enough. Entertainment isn't impressive enough. Food isn't satisfying enough. People aren't reliable enough. The world isn't good enough. Creation isn't permanent enough. We were created by God and for God. And until we understand this, we are restless, broken-hearted, glory chasers, always seeking something more. Only God, the greatest, the highest and greatest good, the infinite Holy One, is finally enough. So in our fallen state, we worship, we outpour in worship, giving glory to the finite, fading, broken things around us that leave us unsatisfied, unfulfilled, desperate, alone. We outpour our lives, our, our energies, our souls to these things as we pursue them, looking to them to do, for them to do something that will never happen, that only God can do, and that satisfy our souls. And even worse, this is sin. It's idolatry. Sin is simply us looking to fulfill a desire in our soul that was created or looking to fulfill a desire within our soul with the created temporary momentary things rather than what we were designed for, God. Furthermore, our broken worship and idolatry is a rejection of God. It's an insult to his purity and his holiness. His perfection, the absolute greatness of God calls for absolute worship of him. Anything less is lacking. Anything less is idolatry. And sin causes separation from a holy God. So as we outpour and worship to all these other things, we find ourselves separated from God, taken from his presence, broken relationship with our creator. Tragically, in our foolishness and our sin, we're unable to find our way back and we wander around outpouring in worship to these finite, fading things that leave us empty and unsatisfied. But praise be to God for his mercy and grace, right? He didn't leave us there, amen? He didn't leave us there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 shows us our condition. It says, in their case, the gods of this world had blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And then in verse six, we get this incredible news for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, speaking to the creation of the world, God creating everything, has shown in our hearts to give us what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In our sin, in our self-consumed brokenness, God in his kindness reached down to us, revealing the light of his glory through the face of Jesus. We have been redeemed by the glory that we rejected. God sent his son to us, the very manifestation of his glory. And Jesus took on the form of, of a human, fully God, fully man, and did what we could never do, right? He lived a life fully 
perfectly, flawlessly worshiping God. Every action, every thought, every emotion lived out in glory to God. And then he died on the cross, took our broken worship, paid the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sin, the death that we deserve to die, and gave us his perfect, flawless worship. His righteousness was placed on us. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Nothing we did, nothing we accomplished, not getting our worship better, not fixing our worship to point it towards God, but rather the perfect worship of Christ being applied to our broken, misaimed worship. So when God looks at us, he sees the perfect worship of Jesus, not our sinful, idolatrous, misaimed worship. And in this, we are united with God, peace with God. Psalm, eight, or Psalm 96 here, verse 8, speaks to this. It says, bring an offering and come into the courts of the Lord. Jesus is our offering. If we look at the Old Testament, we won't go into all of this, but the, the idea of coming into the, the presence of God with a broken, flawed offering is not a good thing. Or showing up with no offering, not a good thing. You don't want to do it, right? But we can enter the courts of God, the presence of God, because Jesus is our perfect offering. Amen? Amen. We could spend the rest of our time just dwelling in this, but we have a bunch of other things to get through. Uh, So why in the midst of this, if we understand that our worship has been redeemed and restored by Jesus, why in the midst of this is Psalm 96 written? Why do we receive that today and need this call to to worship God? Why why is that? And and this this speaks to attention, if we look at it, this speaks to attention that you're probably feeling right now as we've talked about worship and living to the glory of God. Because we understand, yes, in Jesus I am saved. My, my, I have the righteousness of Christ. I'm at peace with my God. But then I look at my life, my last week, and yesterday, this morning, a few minutes ago, and I realize that my thoughts, my actions, my, my deeds, the way I live my life doesn't perfectly point towards God's glory, Right? We live in a selfish way. We live in prideful ways. We live in harmful ways to those around us. And not everything we do, not all of our outpouring of worship is glorifying to God. So how how do we reckon with this? And this is speaking to the already not yet kingdom of God. And we won't, we could unpack this forever, but... Um, just real briefly, the already not yet kingdom of God is that we have been saved. Yes, that work is done. We have been justified, to use a theological term for it. We are right before God. But Christ is returning again. We have that promise to restore a broken world because the world is still broken. We still live and fight with and wrestle with sin. We still give in to this call, this, the, the, the world calling around us to worship. And so there's times and, and places and in many ways that we outpour and worship to ourselves and to things around us rather than living perfectly worshiping God. And Christ will return one day and the full glory of God will be revealed. But while we're still here on earth, we struggle with this. So how do we, how do we reckon with this? How do we align our worship with the truths that, that we know and, and have received? And I believe that's what Psalm 96 is speaking to. 
uh, J.R. Vassar in his book, Glory Hungry, puts it this way. He says, the gospel addresses our condemnation, assuring us that God does not condemn us for our corruption because Jesus was condemned for us. Through his work, Jesus purchased the gift of the Holy Spirit who now resides in us and is working to restore in us the glorious image of God. Speaking of our original, perfectly worshiping God state that we were created in. The old person we were before Christ is progressively done away with as this new image is brought into clearer focus. The Holy Spirit is transforming us to align with the truth of who we are in Christ. So our identity is in Christ. We are in Christ. And now the work of sanctification, to use another theological term, the work of transformation is the Holy Spirit working in us, changing us transforming our hearts to reflect more and more and more the glory of God. An aspect of glory and worship that we haven't talked much about is it's transforming nature. As we outpour and worship to things, we're transformed by them. We are what we worship. We are who we worship. As we outpour and worship to things, they change us. They, they, They affect us. They shape us. Looking back at Adam and Eve, they turn from the glory of God to the finite fading things, and they became like that. They were changed to be like that. But now the reverse is happening. We have been saved, and the Spirit is working in us, transforming us to be like God, to be in a way that reflects the glory of God, not to be God, but to reflect the glory of God as we were created to do. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we get this picture, and I love this verse, because this this just kind of ties it all together. It says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice it doesn't say so that you can transform yourself. Right? It doesn't say beholding the glory of God so you can transform yourself. It says beholding the glory of God as the Spirit works in us and you are transformed. See, we need to recognize that there's a continual fight for our actions and desires to line up with the truth of the gospel that we've already received. We feel that tension, right? We know that tension. We can't fight this on our own. We can't will ourselves to better worship God, to better live in a way that glorifies him. We can't do that. I've tried it. I'm sure you've tried it. It fails. It doesn't work. But the spirit of God works in us. And leads us to repent of the lesser glories that we pursue and leads us back to the glory of God to be shaped and transformed by it. And this is what Psalm 96 is calling us to do. It's calling us to see and behold the glory of the Lord. To be shaped by it. To be affected by it. To have our desires and affections shaped by it. And I think... This is, this is one of the primary reasons that we gather together as a church. And I want to take this opportunity just to talk about this for a little bit. Because there's, there's many ways that the Spirit does this as we worship God, right? But one of the primary ways that I see this playing out in the life of a church, in the life of a Christian, is as we gather together to worship as a church. Worship is so much more than just singing and a, just a worship gathering, but it's not less than that. It's part of it. And something unique happens and powerful happens when the church gathers together to worship God and we proclaim to each other and describe to each other and sing together of the glory of the Lord. We're shaped by it. We're transformed by it. And we see throughout scripture the call for the people of God to gather together and encourage each other in this way. 
to pray together, take communion together, to encourage one another. We see this in places like Ephesians 5, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10. All throughout the Psalms are this call to sing together, to proclaim together the glory of the Lord. And in Colossians 3.16 it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, letting the word of Christ dwell among us as we sing together. So our gatherings are this liturgy, this rhythm of beholding the glory of God. It's a rhythm of grace in our life to help orient us week after week, day after day from the things around us that are calling for us to outpour and worship to them. We get together and we say, no, look at the glory of God. Behold the glory of God. We need to do this personally. We need to do this corporately because there is a war for our affections. There's a war for our desires. We have been saved and we are being transformed. And in that process of transformation, the evil one is attempting to distract us and dull our affections towards the Lord in whatever way he can, as he can get us to pursue whatever trinket of glory we can lay our eyes on and try to seek after. What I need more than anything else, day by day, week by week, moment by moment, moment is to place the glory of God in front of my face and behold the glory of the unchanging God. That's why our gatherings are about the gospel of Jesus. Each week, we walk through the gospel, four movements. God is holy, we are sinners, Jesus saves, Jesus sends us. Our songs and liturgy walk us through that gospel rhythm. And we need this because we need to consciously do this so that our affections, our desires, our, our worship is shaped by the truth of who God is. That's why we need to be daily in God's word. Not as a checklist, hey, did you read scripture today? Yeah, I got it done, good. No, because I wake up and not all the time am I thinking about the glory of God. As I go through my day, there's so many things distracting me. I need to open God's word, put my face in scripture and behold the glory of God. Look to Jesus, fix my eyes on Jesus so that I'm reminded of who I am, of the grace I've been given, the identity that I have in Christ. We gather in community groups week after week after week. Why? Because I need people in my life that can look at my life and encourage me in the gospel, that can speak the truth of God's glory into me. No, you're feeling depressed, I know that, but remember the glory of God. I know this is a really hard time in your life. Know the glory of God. And then we gather as a church to worship together each week, and this is why we should sing with passion. This is why we should hear and read the word of God and hear it preached with a longing and a desire to know and receive This is why we should actively and purposefully engage in the liturgy of the church, what we do when we get together, because we need our souls, our hearts, our affections, our desires shaped by the glory of God. And Psalm 96 is a song for the church, a psalm of worship, calling us to soak our emotions, our desires, our affections in the truth of who God is, using songs and art, poetry and imagery to engage us as a whole being. The Holy Spirit works in us, shaping and transforming us into the glory of God, to pursue the glory of God. We need this. We need to hear this call. We need to pursue the glory of God, knowing that Christ has saved us. It is a spirit that works in us and we put ourselves in a place where we can see the glory of God. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 96 
Verse 2. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of the salvation he has given to you. Allow your heart and mind to rejoice in Jesus and his saving grace. We've been rescued from our sin, saved by Jesus. Sing of this, celebrate it, rejoice in it. Allow your heart to be shaped and transformed by it as the Spirit works in us. Verse 5, for all of the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Know that the things of this world are fading the, thing, the gods that people exalt in this world, the things that they say is of all value, is, is of total worth, are all but fading trinkets compared to the unending, matchless glory of God. Verse 7 and 8, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Speak of God's glory. Tell it to each other. And sp- so that as you speak it to each other, you are reminded that God's glory is above and over all. Verse 11 and 12, Look at creation They are worshiping God. They point towards the glory of God. God's reign and rule is over all of it. Think upon the glory of the Lord. Be shaped by it. Worship God and be transformed by it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this call to see and know your glory. And God, we confess this morning that so often we outpour our lives towards things that do not reflect your glory, that things that, that do not honor you. And so God, I'm thankful this morning for Jesus who has redeemed our worship, who has restored us into a relationship with you. And I pray that your spirit would continue to transform our desires, our affections, our lives to give you glory, that we would behold your glory in all things, that we would know you, that we would rejoice in the truth that you have given us life that you have given us, a satisfaction that can never be taken away. Father, may we be a church that pursues your glory above all things as your spirit works in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.